been so many times when we weren't sure that we could stand and face with pandemics of the body, but also of the soul and spirit. We were not sure, God, that we would go forward, but you in mercy reached out to us. You reminded us of those powerful truths, God, that you have redeemed us. You have called us by name and we are yours help us, would you, God, to stand in the truth that is ours, to stand in the mercy and grace that is ours, no matter what accusations are thrown at us by the world, by the evil one, by our own flesh, to stand in your view of us, your opinion of us. Oh, we love you, God. We receive your mercy and grace today in the name and power of of Jesus. Amen. Now please be seated. Our Old Testament scripture today comes from uh, the book of um, Isaiah. It's one from about eight weeks ago when we began our series. We began with a study of, uh, of a vineyard. And we are concluding today also with communion with a study of the vineyard. But if you go to the middle of your Bibles, if you have Bibles with you, or Google it on your phone, uh, the book of Isaiah is just past the middle of your Bible. We're going to go to that, that overarching uh, parable of the vineyard that God first gave 800 years before the time of Christ through the prophet Isaiah. We are in Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. This is the very word of the Lord spoken through the prophet Isaiah. The word of God. Oh, let me sing for my beloved. My love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. My beloved is God, and the choice vines are his people. He built a watchtower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes. Literally, I think in Hebrew, he looked for it to yield fruit. But it yielded wild grapes in your Bible, stinky fruit in the original language. Stinky fruit. Anybody relate? Oh, now, inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard, God says. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? But when I looked for it to yield fruit, why did it yield stinky fruit? Why did it yield stinky fruit? Now I will tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. And it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste and it shall not be pruned pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. I will command the clouds and they will, that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice. But behold, bloodshed for righteousness. But behold, an outcry. The very word of the Lord. 
Hmm. A hard word, isn't it? But, uh, but thanks be to God, even for the hard words. Now turn with me to the New Testament, if you would. Our final parable for this series. Um, obviously, there are many more than we could possibly uh, approach over the summer. But we are in Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. And while you're turning there or Googling that, I, just would, I would just place it in context for you. Again, uh, Jesus has now come into Jerusalem. And by the way, he came into Jerusalem with the very psalm which we read earlier in our worship. Psalm 118, right? They were shouting that psalm as Jesus came into Jerusalem. If you look on your Bible, you see in in the middle of 19 that it records the story of that triumphal entry. It records the story of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. And again, Luke did that in such a powerful way. Would that you, verse 42, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden for your eyes. And then he goes on and prophesies just like we just heard in Isaiah. That God will knock everything to the ground. There will not be one stone upon another. Why? Because you did not know the time of visitation. But then Jesus came to the temple. And and when he went into the temple, he saw that it had been taken over by merchandising, by marketing, by false practices in that famous passage of beauty, beautiful passage of, of God responding with measured anger, right? Measured anger. He turns over the tables, right? He says, um, it's written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. But then look at the very end of 19. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy Jesus. But they didn't find anything that they could do. For all the people were hanging on his every word. I would pick up our passage for today, beginning in Luke 20, verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, note that Jesus has taken up residence in the temple in Holy Week, right? He's taken up residence in there and he's teaching in the temple and preaching the gospel the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, this very same people who sought to kill him in the last chapter, said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. And he answered, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man. Doesn't this seem like a complete diversion, right? Like Jesus is taking them a whole different direction, but he's not. He's not. He's answering their question for them. And they discussed it with one another, verse 5, saying, if we say from heaven, then he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. For they are convinced that John was a prophet. Was. John has been beheaded by the time of our passage today. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So he didn't answer their question, but he did continue. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants 
and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Note the progression now in Luke of what happens to the servants that the man sends. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one, they also wounded. Also, they did everything else that they did and also wounded him and cast him out. The language is getting stronger and stronger. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? We've seen that so many times in the parables. God stops and he says, what, what shall I do with this people, right? I know I will send my beloved son. Perhaps, and your Bible says, they will respect him. Um, the, the word there is the same word that they used earlier for shame. Perhaps they will be ashamed when they see my own beloved son come, right? But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard. This prophecy and this is just astounding. They threw him out of the vineyard, out of the city, right? And they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? For the third time we hear, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. You can almost see them like in, in Fiddler on the Spitting, right? Surely not. Right? Like, may it never be. May it never be. But Jesus looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The very word of God. Really? Really? This is a hard word. Really? Oh, we need hard words sometimes, don't we? Uh, and wouldn't you much rather have it spoken to you than, than have the consequences overtake you and overwhelm you? Oh, God, give us ears to hear. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations, God, of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, our rock. And our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. <laughs> I'm struck a little bit, as, even as I read the scripture, of um, when I was, uh, I'm trying to think who it was. I think it was my big sister, but I probably shouldn't blame her if I can't be sure. But, but whenever I would get a little bit too uppity, right? Whenever I would get a little too big for my britches, um, she would say, who died and made you king, Right? Have you ever heard that before? <laughs> who you know? You might substitute a word there for king, but 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 who died and gave you authority? You know, in a sense, my sister, if that's my memory is correct, my sister was kind of echoing what we're seeing right here in the scripture, right? Because because people who've always been 
in authority. Now somebody's coming up and taking over, right? I mean, they saw that uh, just a few days before, a couple of days before, when he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and the people were laying down their coats. They were waving that symbol of rebellion, the palm branch, right? They were crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, Words that were clearly defining the Messiah. When the Messiah came. And and then what does he do? He goes into the temple and he makes a mess of the thing. He turns over the table. He 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 gets out a whip and drives the money changers from the temple. He he prophetically speaks in the temple and were that not enough then he takes up residence there. It's like occupy the temple, right? It's he takes up residence in the temple so that anyone who came to the temple for all the normal functions that they would come for would encounter him. Jesus was preaching in the temple, right? So so what is the central issue uh, for this parable? The central issue for the religious leaders was authority. You remember, don't you, that in the century before the time of Christ, there had been, there had been a couple of major figures in the rabbinic world. And, and whenever anybody said anything, and they didn't always agree, by the way, they would quote one or the other, right? They would, they would quote one of the famous rabbis, Halal. They would, they would quote them and, and, and so the authority was derived authority that came from somebody that everybody respected. Their authority was derived from someone else. Now, make no mistake, even within their own structures, there was pecking order. We've seen that. There were, there were people who had more authority than others, and they would defer to one another. But the issue over and over again was who is in authority over this place? And they were used to being in authority over religious places. They were, they were used to being authority over religious law. Again, in the chosen, you can see some of that by the way that the actors are treat the, the Nicodemus figure in there. He's from Jerusalem. Ooh. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. Ooh. He has authority. Ooh. Right? And they fawned over him. But they were used to being in authority over places and law. Where you were required to be. And what you were required to do, where you were required to be, and what you were required to do. But now, Jesus is occupying the temple, right? Jesus is teaching the law, the be and the what, right? The people were hanging We saw at the end of 19, on his every word. And make no mistake, he was using controversial metaphors, right? Tear down this temple. He he says when he's standing in the temple that took 70 years to build, right? Tear down this temple and in three days I will raise it up. No wonder they, they did not understand how in the world could that be. He was using controversial metaphors. He was questioning not only the teaching but especially probably the motives of the religious leaders, right? The teaching and the motives 
of the religious. So it makes sense, doesn't it, that, that then they would question him about the source of authority. Now, just like they were afraid of confronting John the Baptist because of all the people that were that were hanging on John the Baptist's words, all the, the popularity of John the Baptist, Jesus is a very popular figure right this moment. Check in again about three more days, but right this moment, he's a very popular figure. And so they very carefully questioned him about the source of his authority. This is really the first of three traps. We won't deal with them all today, but the first of three traps that they would set for him. First, the source of his authority and the purpose of his activity. Sorry, these words are going by really fast. The source of his authority and the purpose of his activity. But when, as we'll see, he answered them so powerfully, they moved on to his relationship with the Roman government. Shall we pay taxes to Caesar or not, right? When he answered that in just a miraculous, amazing way, they tested him on his relationship with the Jewish law. They tried to trap him into saying something for which he could be discredited. Note that the one question they didn't ask was about his relationship with God, right? They didn't ask about his relationship with God. Now, I stumble when I say that because possibly that's what they were asking when they asked the source of his authority because ultimately the source of his authority was God, right? But they were so used to the disconnect between their relationship with God and their activity. Did you hear that? They were so used to the disconnect between what they do and who they say they worship, right? That they didn't even notice. No, their only goal was to place him in a dilemma, to place him in a lose-lose situation so that no matter what he said, no matter what he did, he would stumble and he would lose popularity, right? So, so let's just deal today with the first part of this. By whose authority do you speak and act, right? And note Jesus' three-part answer, right? He asked them a question. Now, those of you with teenagers know exactly how this works, right? Because that's exactly what your teenagers do. When you ask them a pointed question, they come back with another question, right? But Jesus, who is trying to be caught in a dilemma, turns the question around and asks what looks. If we're just glancing at this, if you're racing through your quiet times, just trying to crank out another chapter so you can check the box, right? You look at this, but this is completely unrelated. <clears throat> Why does he ask such an obtuse question. Was John's baptism, was the things that John was doing, were they of God or were they of man, right? He turned the tables and put them in a dilemma. What do I mean? If they said it was from God, then they would, as the scripture shared with us, he would ask, why didn't you obey John then? Why didn't you do what John said? But if they said from man, then the people who they were so devoted to pleasing, right? Then the people around him who believed him to be a prophet would rebel from their authority. They would lose their audience. Now, note here the danger of theology by popular opinion, right? And and you're thinking, of course I can see that, right? But it's happening all around us, beloved. 
people are making statements of theology, theos, God, logos, a word about. People are saying words about God, right, that are popular in our culture, but have no correlation to Jesus or to his heavenly father. Wow. So the same thing that was happening 2,000 years ago is happening all around us now as well. So what did they do? They chose to say, we don't know. And in a stunning um, act of rebellion, I don't can't think of an easier way of saying that, Jesus said, neither will I answer your question. Now, I said that earlier, and and then I said, but he did answer. He didn't answer it in the way they wanted him to. He didn't try and dig his way out of the dilemma that they purposefully set for him. Instead, he did as as he so often uh, would. He told a parable, right? He told a story. And the answer to their question was in the story, if they had eyes to see, if they had ears to hear, right? He told them this parable about... Uh, a, a owner of a vineyard who entrusted that vineyard to tenants, to renters who paid their rent by giving the owner some of the fruit of their harvest, right? And so he planted the vineyard. He built the watchtower. He did all those things going back to the Isaiah passage, right? And he planted them in it. He let them in it almost now, not in a, in a master slave relationship because they're the, the fruit of their labors comes from how much they invest. They're in complete, uh, uh, opportunity to, to do well or to do poorly. We've seen this over and over again in our studies of the parables, the parable of the talents. What do you do with what's been given to you, right? What do you do? So, so it, it wasn't so much a master-slave relationship. It was a partnership where he entrusted his precious vineyard to them. And all that he asked was somehow that they honor him with some portion of the fruit of that vineyard. But nothing happened. So he sent one of his servants. For time's sake, I'll say that this is, this equates to the prophets. Prophets came and said, how are you doing? Are you honoring God with what he's entrusted to you? And and they uh, they kicked him out, right? He sent another one, and we saw that it was escalating. Now they, they shamed him and kicked him out. He sent a third one, and they shamed him and spoke against him and wounded him and kicked him out. And, and then in this divine soliloquy, the master of the vineyard, God, says, what shall I do? I know. I will send my only beloved son. Surely his presence will shame them into doing what they need to be doing, right? Surely his presence will elicit the right response. Now this is, this is on Monday or Tuesday of Holy Week. On Friday he would be crucified, right? And on Friday they took him outside of the city, outside of the vineyard, and they killed him, right? Several days earlier, he he pronounces, he announces exactly what will happen. He's announcing his own death. Now, in fairness, no, not really fairness. I'm not going to make excuses for them. But there were several legal things that they could, that was probably going through their mind. One was just was just the um, the squatters' rights, right? If you take over something for long enough, it becomes your property. 
don't know if I have time for this, but but um, I'm, I'm a little conscious of that in my neighborhood because um, I I live in the own, the builder's daughter's house, right? He built this house for his daughter, so he put it on a double lot. It's it's a big lot. We pay taxes on a lot next to us, right? You know, um, and and my neighbors, of course, just assume that that the lot lines are evenly distributed between the houses, right? So they just they just take the middle of the area between the houses and 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 build out to that place. The people behind us, um, I'm, I put up a fence, and I, I intentionally put the fence a couple of feet inside the property line so there'd be no possible conflict with my neighbors, right? Well, they built out to my fence, right? They put in a rock garden that my lawnmower picks up rocks and shoots them across the yard, right? Um, uh, and I'm not saying any ounce of maliciousness in this. That just didn't occur to them. But after 20 years now of living in this house, if from their perspective, two owners later, three owners later, that's their property, right? I had to go to a sweet, sweet couple who lives next to me, and and he he just kept mowing further and further into my my yard, and 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 so I said, I am so grateful for you doing that, but you don't have to mow my yard, right? <laughs> I I'll do it. Here's the property line, right? And 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 you can see exactly where it is. So I understand how this would happen. I've taken care of it long enough. It's mine, right? And that, there was a law about that. I'm sorry, I can't remember whether it's five years or seven years. In, in the scripture, but if someone's there for five or seven years, they have squatters' rights. We see this in our culture, right? One of the challenges of, of the law about um, about renters versus um, rentees, right, was that if, if this goes on for too long, at some point, people are just going to assume, nope, this is my property. But there was a there was a second law that was was critically important here as well, and 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 that was that um, that that if the owner was not alive, then any, this is a Jewish law, then anyone could lay claim to that property, right? So when the son of the owner came, it was really easy to assume that the owner was dead, the son had been given the land, the son was coming to claim his right to the land, and if we kill the son, then this is ours. Wholly apart from the mystery of all that legalese right there, understand what might have been their motivation. As a religious leader, I can take over the function of God. I can, I can take over the vineyard of God. If we put this Jesus to death, then the vineyard is completely ours. Now, in fairness, the vineyard had been completely theirs for a couple hundred years. They had squatters' rights, right? But Jesus tells them a parable that calls them out, that that reads the thoughts and intentions of their heart, and that pronounces his own death in three to four days, uh, that, that tells them exactly what's going to happen, right? Because here's the reality. God had blessed the nation of Israel abundantly. He'd given them land that was rich and pleasant. All that he asked was that they obeyed his statutes. If you're in your notes, that's a phrase in there. Obeyed his statutes. All that he asked was that they honor him with a portion of the harvest. But instead of being grateful, give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. His love endures forever, right? Instead of being grateful, Psalm 118, for his blessings and joyfully, joyfully giving to the Lord that which was his due. 
As Malachi would say later, they chose to rob God and to reject his messengers. So God was patient. God sent them one messenger after another, but they refused to obey and they abused. They refused and abused, right? They abused his messengers. Finally, God sent his only beloved son and they killed him. So Jesus Jesus sees the trap that's being laid. He asks them a question. He tells them a parable, but he also reminds them of a powerful prophecy also from Psalm 118, the beginning of our worship service. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, right? The stone that the people charged with building on on this this God-given property has been rejected. That one's not worthy. We will choose another one, right? But God takes that very same stone and says, no, this is the cornerstone. This doesn't have any uh, correlation to us in our culture now. We still put ceremonial cornerstones in, but but in Jesus' day, the cornerstone actually set the direction that the, the building would be built. It had to be the perfect cornerstone, right? Perfectly square, perfectly solid. It became the foundation for everything that would come after that, right? And Jesus is clearly identifying himself as this, as this cornerstone. What he's saying, everybody understood it. The stone in Psalm 118 is the Messiah. The stone in Psalm 118 is the Messiah. Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. What are you going to do with me? What? And it's a question, beloved, for us today, right? Because God has entrusted to us his vineyard, right? Oh, it looks different for each of us, but he has gifted you with, with amazing abilities. He has entrusted to you. Remember the value of the talents, right? 6,000 days wages apiece. 30,000 days wages to the one person. Uh, he's entrusted to you a lifetime to invest for him. What are you going to do with this Jesus, what are you going to do with this stone? You see, it can cause you to stumble just like he caused the Jewish leaders to stumble. Oh, and that, remember that stone not hewn by hands, which rolled out in Daniel 2 down and crushed the kingdoms of the world. This stone can crush you as well. It's part of the Part of the not fun stuff about truth. You can stumble over truth. You can be crushed by truth. Or, or it can become the foundation of your life. It can become the, the rock which gives strength and direction to every aspect of your life. So as we prepare for communion today, worship team, come on up if you would. Let me just ask a couple of clarifying questions for us. In whose vineyard are you working? And it's a, it's a dilemma question. It's a trick question, right? Because if you say, I'm working in my vineyard, then you're not recognizing, oh, this is Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord and everything in it, right? Fundamental question for us is, 
everything we have and everything we do the Lord's? Or is it ours? Is your life bearing fruit for the kingdom of God? Are you honoring God with your life by obeying His Word? Right, Not just the parts of His Word that are popular to obey in our culture today, but are you obeying His Word? Are you returning to God a portion, His portion of the fruit of your life? Talking about money, but not just talking about money. Talking about your time and your treasure and your talents. Are you offering back to him a portion, just a portion of what he has entrusted to you? Right? Is your life bearing fruit for the kingdom of God? But secondly, and and maybe most importantly, what are you going to do with God's beloved son? Because really, everything comes down to this. What And I said that in the future, even though in your notes it might be in the present, because I don't really care what's happened up to this point, right? This comes from Psalm 118. This is the day that the Lord has made, right? We got a brand new start right here, people. We got an opportunity right now for a mid-course correction. We got an opportunity to honor God with all that we are and all that we have and all that we do. What are you going to do with God's beloved son? Will you stumble over him? Will you be crushed by him? Or will you build your life Upon him. I guess another another way that I'm thinking about this is the question, in what or in whom are you placing your hope? Now you have hope for a peaceful end of your life. You can have hope for health, right? And we've seen how fragile, how fragile that is. We can, we can have a hope that somehow we can save ourselves and, and come to that day when we stand before him and hear that that hope was not sufficient. There is one hope that is worthy of your standing upon. How did the hymn writer put it? My hope is built on nothing less, help me, than Jesus blood and righteousness.